Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Hey, everybody, and thank you for joining me. This is Richard Listens, and this is the Richard Listens Show. I'm grateful for all the wonderful contributions and guests we've been having lately. Thank you again to all my subscribers, for all of you who've been signing up for email lists, signing up on our Patreon.com page to support the show, Patreon.com slash Richard Listens, Instagram at Richard Listens. Please tweet at me, Instagram. Facebook. Sign up, subscribe, and listen. Please take the time. Send this to two friends that you think might like the show. Without further ado, I'm going to be inviting on shortly uh, my guest today. Mr. Paul Shirley, mm-hmm. continue following your passion. I mean, clearly, uh, all the work with Writer's Block, I mean, the ability to help people express themselves and come together through writing. Maybe you didn't have this passion, or maybe it was just bubbling up when you were entering your 30s. I'm not sure exactly when it, you can tell us when it really fully took off for you from being a hobby into, you know, deciding you wanted to become an author. So to continue that and to continue following it in all the ways that it, it guides you. It's inspiring. And, and I regularly refer my clients to go to Writer's Block and when people talk to me. I mean, it's not the only uh, gig in town, but it's an amazing mm-hmm. opportunity. And the fact that Paul is using his gift, put himself out there. And, and I think it's $7 a class. 10 bucks now. <laughs> what Richard's referring to is I run this, uh, it's now, we're now a nonprofit uh, oh, okay. writing, writing community slash organization that meets three nights a week uh, to give people a place to get writing done, mostly because writing is very lonely. And I think it helps to be around other people who are doing that, not only for the process of the writing itself, but also just to commiserate afterward and totally. understand that there are other people like you in the world. Talk about productivity, accountability, structure, all of those things, because writing is such a loosey-goosey, ephemeral pastime or activity. It's nice to have some people who are expecting you to show up 
So then you feel obligated to get something done as opposed to if you're just sitting in your house thinking, I should be writing, but I'm not actually going to. I have, in the last five years or so, really made the connection between my basketball career and my writing career in that people tend to assume, I think, with basketball players especially, but also probably with football and baseball players, that they had some natural gift and that's why they got good at it. However, if I talk to you about a figure skater or a gymnast, you'd be like, oh yeah, they practice for six hours a day and that's how they got good. It turns out that basketball is a lot like that. It's just that we tend to think of basketball players as naturally athletic or gifted. So I've been kind of hammering this idea that like I got good at basketball because I put in a lot of time, as did everyone who got good at it. And writing's the exact same way. You create this routine, this discipline, and you do it over and over and over again. And that's how you become quote unquote talented. There is no just like, I'm a good writer or I'm a good basketball player. It's always a product of a bunch of work. And when I think back about, you know, I mean, some texts which we all have to read in, in high school and some which got me excited about reading probably in early college years from Hemingway to Kerouac and on the road and that kind of stuff. It was always about this, like, they weren't like sitting at a desk. They were connecting with their friends and going on journeys. Mm -hmm. So the idea, especially from the kind of things that will, you know, come to me and are struggling with connection mm -hmm. for whatever reason, the fact that they can go and explore their creativity and also connect to someone else and learn how to get feedback. Yeah, I, think, I, I do think people tend to view writing as a solitary activity, which on its face it might be, but like you're saying, most writers have led rich, full lives where they have spent a lot of time around other people, in part because that opens up their eyes to new perspectives and all of that, but also because it reminds you of how people behave. If you're writing a screenplay, fiction, whatever you're writing, you need to know how people behave so as to accurately capture that. And I think sometimes people get so cloistered away from the world that they forget, oh yeah, I need to, I need to be around some people who are talking so I can write about people who are talking. I think what's tricky is that when you get to certain levels, so in basketball, for example, you probably don't want to let on how hard you're working because that in your mind takes away from the, the majesty of it a little bit. So I think in, in sports, especially because we look at our athletes as cool a lot of the time, we want to think of them as like, oh, well, he just, you know, it's, it's almost as if he's a wizard. He just walks out there and does this thing. We don't really want to think about how much work went into that because in some ways that takes away from it. It also, and this is the dark side of it, I think people don't want to be faced with, oh, if I actually had worked at this, maybe I would have been good at it too. They yeah. want to believe that it is some sort of like God-given talent as opposed to working really hard. I mean, I've, as you can imagine, I've heard so many times in my life, like people will say it directly to me, man, if I had your height, I would have done X, Y, or Z. And usually I'll just back what them away. What kind of reaction does that evoke <laughs> yeah. from you, Paul? Usually I'm like, no, actually you wouldn't. <laughs> But were there moments early, like, like clearly, like, were people pushing you towards basketball and, or volleyball or? So I, I played baseball as a kid. 
And uh, basketball happened because of a rebellion against my father, actually. So he would he would take my brothers and I and sort of train us in the backyard, play baseball. And I found basketball as a way to kind of get away from something like myself. And when I started playing at age 12 or 13, you would never have pegged me as a future NBA basketball player. In fact, my first driver's license in Kansas, you could get a learner's permit at 14. So I was uh, going into my freshman year of high school. My driver's license... I was five foot eleven and weighed 120 pounds. I was the point guard wow. on our basketball team, and so in fact, wow. fell in love with basketball as a point guard, as someone who actually could use my lack of size against people. Right? Like I could be clever on the court, kind of wind my way around people. So it was only later that I grew and then was able to take advantage of that size as I got to be of 18, 18, 20 years. Ever had that like seven inch summer, which was probably fortuitous in that I was able to maintain a lot of those point guard like skills. Like I could still shoot, handle ball sorts of things. You know, if you see me in the wild, I'm six nine and I weigh two hundred and thirty pounds, you might think you would retroactively fit it. You'd be like, well yeah, like that guy maybe played in the NBA. But in truth, there are lots and lots of guys who are six nine out in the world. What people also forget is that when you get to those levels it gets really, really competitive. It's everyone knows at that level like what's at stake and what's online here. It's not like, oh well, you know, we're six nine, we should just play in the NBA. That's not quite how it goes. Really good when I was in college. So that definitely increased my chances. I benefited from playing guys who were gonna be in the NBA and from playing in a league that had lots of players who were in the NBA. So did that influence your choices? Yeah. When I left high school, I had this I mean I, I think it's interesting how wise we are at young ages. I think you we don't give kids very much credit for how much foresight they probably have, but I could tell, like, I understand this a lot better than most people. And I think when I grow into my body and when I start to put things together, that I will have a chance to be a pro, right? Now, I didn't tell anybody that because I grew up in a town of 700 people in Kansas. You don't say those if you grow up in a town of 700 people in Kansas. And and so that influenced, yes, as you're saying, I, that's part of why I picked Iowa State. I thought that was the best chance I had of make pros. I walked on at Iowa State. I was there on an academic scholarship. So went there like not knowing how it would go. Most of my other offers had been like Ivy League schools and Division II schools. So it was a a real leap of faith, but it was one of those things where I just had this sense. And again, I could have been wrong, right? It worked out, but I had this sense that if I go to this big school, I can figure this out such that it work out. But that's tremendous intuitive power for an 18 year old to be like, I'm giving up the scholarship to go. I could take a bigger leap here and this could happen. I vividly remember my uncle, who's one of the people I most admire in the world, is our family's Harvard grad. He went to Harvard, got an English degree, went on to be a doctor. And so I, I was accepted at Harvard and could have played basketball there. And he, mild-mannered man that he is, just lit me up over the phone one night because he's like, you're going to turn this down to go to Iowa State 
of all places. And I, I don't even know if I could articulate it at the time, but I was sort of going with my gut that like, I want to push this basketball thing as hard as I can. And if I fail at it, at least I will know I gave it a shot at the best that I could try. I have this great fear of regret. So I would not want to look back at the end of my life and say, ah, if I had just put the energy into that, then I could have done this. Whereas I think some people look at it and it's, I think that that is viewed as positive by our society. So I lucked out. The opposite of that is like, I don't want to have failed. I don't want to have tried really hard at anything because I can always keep in the back of my mind. Well, if I had just tried, then I might've succeeded. I had my first coach at Iowa State was Tim Floyd. And I remember one day at practice, he just went after a guy named Kelvin Cato who went on to play in the NBA for a long time, but who was kind of limited offensively and and was mostly just like a shot blocker and dunker. And he was saying to Kato, like, your problem is you don't want to be seen to be trying hard. So Kelvin Cato was one of those guys who it just kind of came naturally. He didn't want to work at it very hard because in his brain, it was the opposite. He wanted to be able to say, if I had tried, I could have done X, right? You, like you've seen that, I'm sure in psychology, there's that two sides to that. Some people don't want to go all the way because they want to keep in reserve this idea of what could have been if I had tried. I happen to have the opposite problem. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a fear of failure, whereas for you, the fear of regret is right. that long view, mm -hmm. whereas I'd rather swing big. Which I think has led to a lot of sadness and misery, but in a positive way, right? Where you're like, you know, I can remember with the Lakers, you're wearing the Lakers hat. When I went to training camp with the Lakers, I was completely unheralded, not drafted, last invite to camp, had really no business being there. It was the Lakers of Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant and Phil Jackson and threw it all out there as best I could, but was the first guy cut. It was me and Dennis Scott, who was at the very end of his career. But I remember that that feeling of just abject failure when I went back to the hotel after getting cut by the Lakers, even though it wasn't a surprise. Like I wasn't, it wasn't like I was killing everybody in practice. It would have been a real leap of faith for them to keep me around. But there is that sense of like, I did everything I could and I wasn't even close, which leads to some pretty extreme sadness, right? But I think that is cathartic in its way, right? Like you've hit that bottom because you know there's nothing else I could have done. So did it push you back into basketball or did it push you? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it was a great trainer for how life works in that you fail over and over again. And eventually there's some little green shoots where you start to see like, oh, well, it's, you know, it worked because I tried really hard in this whatever circumstance. And if I just keep doing that over and over and over, it will probably go okay. So it speaks to the importance of failing. Some people like just to get a trial with the Lakers would be a dream. Right. Yeah. So I think it depends on your context. Right. So for me, that was I could perceive that as failure because I felt like I can do this. I'm not there yet. 
but I'm not quite there. So I do a fair bit of public speaking and, and had an agent for a while. When I first started doing these talks, I would talk about failure as a great teacher, right? And loved that because I love that subject. I think it's so important to be able to talk about how to fail, how to pick yourself up after it, how to like move through this, which is a thing I've just done over and over in my life. But that agent said, like, well, look, we can't pitch a speech with the word failure in it, which was frustrating because I was like, I think that's important. So in the end, I have fired that guy and now I'm starting to get back to, I do want to talk. I love talking about failing and how it's a great teacher and how recovering from that, learning how to recover from it is really the best skill you can have in any of these sort of pursuits, whether that's writing or entrepreneurship or sports. So my career ended when I was 32 or 33. And my first book had come out when I was, I don't know, 29 or something like that in the middle of my career. I had continued to write and had plans to, to write after my career. I didn't quite know how that would work. So I spent like three years on a novel that was very much based on my own life and would work on it, you know, hard sometimes, not so hard other times. Ended up sending that to my then literary agent. He took it out to some publishers. They all said no. He said, I, I don't know what more we can do with this. I said, well, I'm going to I'll self-publish this. So I sent it off to an editor and she wrote back. And I remember vividly, I was, I had moved to LA. I was in a coffee shop on Venice Boulevard when I got her note, which said, Paul, unfortunately, this is neither a memoir nor a novel. It's just, it doesn't have a place. It's not quite good enough. And it hit me in the way that these things do. When you kind of know deep down, like this thing isn't quite right, whatever I'm working on, it just isn't quite good enough. So I, I like was in tears in this coffee shop. And that was one of those moments where I had failed. And part of the reason I had failed was because I wasn't working hard enough at it. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run, but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. Injitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, protecting athletes in youth sports, all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. So that was my little come to Jesus meeting with myself or my like dark side, like they talk about in screenwriting, right? Like the right. dark night of the soul. So that was when I, when it hit me, like, you know what? The problem here is I haven't committed. I haven't gone all in on setting up my life so that I can put out books. And since then I've gotten really 
rigid about i write for one hour a day you've probably seen me at aharon's coffee shop that's right you switch coffee shops this is part <laughs> yeah, of your- I, move, yes. I move well I, I move around from coffee shop to coffee shop and i so i try to and sometimes this gets screwed up by like book two or something but i write for one hour six days a week before i turn on my phone and it is amazing the output that i've managed in whatever it's been three or four years since then i've got this book that you are talking about is out in the world the fourth draft of another book is in the works now the third draft of uh, yet another book is already done so like it just works to continue to like now with that said i don't know that any of these are going to work out right like who knows if these books are going to be good but i can tell you that i've thrown it all the wall there's not a lot left in the tank so you're kind of trusting your process and what allows your mind to not be distracted by media and other things no no it's very structured in that i will work on a book or a draft for three months at a time so i moved stories i tell on dates out the door and then the next move was now i need to go back and finish third draft of this young adult novel that i'm working but i'm only going to allow myself three months because i've found that that's about my personal attention span before i start to kind of work in reverse and screw things up and then i'm able to let something else simmer in the back of my head it's all about that that routine and the rigidity and the deadline of knowing like i love what i love about it and it it goes back to what i found about basketball which was if you can say i'm gonna go to the court every day for an hour you know when you and this you'll appreciate this about the psychology of it you're you are making a deal with your brain that you're only gonna work out with an hour i think a lot of times people screw up because some days they'll work out for two hours some days it's a half an hour and then your brain never quite knows when you're about to done so you don't know how to just throw it all out there it's the same with writing i will cut myself off at an hour no matter where i am because i'm i've made that deal with myself when i start look paul you only have to do it for an hour and then that makes it easier to start but i have to keep that deal with myself in the same way that when in my basketball days i would say whatever it was okay you're going to go to the track and you're going to run eight four hundreds well you're not going to run nine you're going to run eight. It's going to be hard, but you only have to run eight. So you're not concerned with the quantity of pages. I mean, sometimes I will push myself instead of an hour. It might be you're going to write 1,500 words of a rough draft, which usually takes about an hour. But I've set some very hard and fast goal because I think it's important for our brains to know that there is an end point. I have a long experience with this because I've been doing it since I was 16 with something, basketball for a long time. But I would, you know, I would go to basketball camp sometimes and you'd see some college player who would get up there and he'd be like, well, kids, you know what I do? I shoot a thousand shots every day. And you're like, that's, you don't do that. If you did that, your arm would fall off. Yeah. A. And B, you would be the best shooter in the world. And you are not. You are a ninth guy at the University of Missouri. So I know that you're not doing that. I think it's actually one of the things that keeps people from doing things is that it seems so intimidating because writers will talk about, well, yeah, I write for four hours a day. No, you don't. You're on Facebook for three hours and 15 minutes and you actually wrote for 45 minutes. And now you're creating a barrier to entry because you sort of want to believe yourself that you're working hard actually. I think it'd be better to say it's 30 minutes. You know, especially if you're just getting started. Well, I love this principle of like short-term goals, frequency of five, six days a week. Then in a way, it takes the pressure off. 
Oh yeah, I think it it really frees up the the creative side too because you're able to take chances that you might not otherwise because you know, look, I'm going to be back at it tomorrow and if I screw something up, I'll fix it tomorrow, right? Whereas I think a lot of people get stuck because they're writing once a week or they're working out once a week or whatever the thing is. And then that takes on so much importance to you because you're like, well, this is my only chance this week. I don't, I'm going to be now paralyzed by the fear that I'm going to mess this up, right? And how am I going to remember where I was or whatever it is? I think it, in a lot of ways, I'm what I'm talking about about is laziness actually yeah. it's like you're you're creating efficiency in the routine such that you don't have to go through all of this other stuff you know what i mean yeah i mean this is really so brilliant in so many ways because so much of my work with clients whether they be athletes or not is about slowing down their process what's going on in their brain when they get to the free throw line mm-hmm. you know what's it, right like we said it is it is taking multiple free throws and practicing the same form over and over right but if you're out there too long, if you're already fatigued, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the same if you make a deal. Well, yeah, if you think about like the way you warm up to work out, whether that's running or yoga or whatever it is, you probably set up a pretty standard routine, right? And I think we forget that we need that in other pursuits in our lives. I think we naturally do it if we go into an office. We'll be like, well, I go in and I, I get my coffee and I say hello to Peter and then I, you know, I check Twitter or whatever. So we create these routines without knowing them. Sometimes those routines can be destructive because they might take us away from whatever we're trying to pursue. So if your routine with working out were, well, I go in and then I stretch and then I shoot some black tar heroin and then I go work. You'd be like, well, we need to cut out the heroin <laughs> yeah, and then we can figure out how to. So I think things like whatever, checking Twitter before you start writing, that's the equivalent of black tar heroin. It's going to get you out of the pre- the creative process. So how can you create this routine or this regimen that you can just do over and over in the same way that you would do for a free throw? You wouldn't go up there to a free throw and be like, well, this time I'm going to stand on my head and dribble four times before I shoot. And the next time it's going to be me flipping off the crowd before I shoot. Right. Like, that would be crazy. So how do you find those things for the writers out there? How do you find those things that kind of settle you and help you focus in or, you know, to trigger when is that hour every day? So for me, it's music. Actually, my routine is that I, as I mentioned, I don't turn on my phone until after I've written that this all happens after I've had a big breakfast. I've meditated. I've done some stretching, all of that. I drive to a coffee shop. I try to as quickly as I can get my computer out, play a song that's going to like kind of get me going for the day. And then that's when the writing starts. I will listen to other music that's more like writer friendly for the hour that I'm writing. And then when I'm done, after an hour is done, I can listen to whatever ridiculous song I want. So something poppy and absurd to, as to serve as like a break, like, okay, we're done. Now we're listening to Def Leppard, right? Like whatever the reward <laughs> song is. A lot of them are just like something that I'm listening to now that I'm loving, right? Thing that I'm really into. There's a song by this band, Sylvanesso, that I'm really 
really into this last six months or so. But I would like listen to that to kind of like get me going for the day. Okay, now I'm writing. Now I'm going. You know, you can do this. Writing music is usually something without lyrics, like post rock, like explosion in the sky, that sort of thing. I find that lyrics kind of screw up the wordsmithery. I think fiction has a longer lifespan just because I pretty much have squeezed the lemon dry <laughs> on stories from my own life. So it's it's nice to be able to write things that aren't necessarily true to my exact existence, although there's, of course, a lot of truth in fiction. I'm sort of tired of my own life at this point, like I've written enough about it. What made you decide to write a book about stories you tell on date? It came about uh, fairly organically in that I noticed that when I was on dates, I had these stories that I would kind of find my way to. We all have certain stories that define who we are. I've been on a lot of dates because I've lived in a lot of places and I've been single for a long time. I've kind of studied this without necessarily knowing I was studying it. And at first I was a little angry with myself because it seemed like I was going into material. But I think it's pretty universal and also can be forgiven because I think we we have these stories. So if, if I met Peter, right, and I said, hey, man, why are you in a wheelchair? You probably have a story that, you, that explains that pretty quickly so that you don't have to take half an hour to do it. And so similarly, I have certain stories that explain like what it was like growing up in a small town or my NBA experience quickly or what it was like being in Iowa State or being in Spain. A lot of those stories are ways to reframe the conversation. So if I'm in LA and I'm out on a date with some girl who maybe thinks, oh, this guy played in the NBA, he probably thinks he's pretty glamorous. I might want to undercut that by telling the story because that humanizes me. That makes me a real person who's been through this at the time traumatic experience. So I noticed that I did this and I, and I started writing down the best like 50 that I could think of. Winnowed that down to 20 or so that I thought were the most germane and then started to kind of figure out like, okay, which of these are the ones that are really going to connect? Obviously, the title's a little bit of a misnomer because I wouldn't tell a 20-page story on a date. But I liked that framework. So each chapter now starts on a date. I explain, like, how did I meet this girl in Russia? How, how did we come to be on this date? And now why would I tell her a particular story? And then I go back and tell the story, and then I come back and explain what happened with the date. The third rail, as it were, that I think helps make the book work is that it also serves as a sort of quest for love. I, I figured out at about age 27 that I'd not really had a, an adult girlfriend. So the chapters are in chronological order of me going on dates where I'm kind of increasingly looking for a special someone. And it ends on something of a happy note. I think it was tough for my parents. I guess it did not occur to me because I've been writing so much material about my life in the world. And I've spent a lot of my life growing up in front of other people, mostly on basketball courts, but also in writing. It was surprising to me that my parents were taken aback by how open I was because they're true and they humanize me and they allow other people to relate to me, which is the greatest purpose I think you can go for in writing is I'm going to allow someone else to connect 
to an experience I've had. But I think my parents, who definitely grew up in a different time, but also just have a different outlook on how you should talk about your life, didn't necessarily love that. My mom actually does some public speaking, and she will say that she has her own story of that day, right? Like she has her own perspective, which I've not actually ever heard. But it's interesting to think about how, right, I had this experience with my mom teaching sex ed, but she had an experience where she's teaching her son's class sex ed, and she knows everyone in the room. It's a town of 700 people. So she has her own perspective on that story. So maybe she'll write a book someday. (laughs) When I would tell that story, when I was like 20, I was telling that story around my mom. And when I would tell it, I remembered it as a banana. And my mom stopped me one time. and She's like, Paul, no, that's not what happened. And I thought, oh, I've made this worse in my head. Like you do. Like, you know, you tend to make things more traumatic. You were so traumatized. Yeah. And she's like, no, no, I used I used my whole forearm. And I was like, oh, that's way worse. I actually made it better in my brain. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. Please. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. Please, if you can, check out my Patreon page.com, patreon.com slash Richard Listens or Instagram Richard Listens. Uh, you get the theme. We appreciate all your support and interest. We're now up on iTunes, Spotify. If you're interested in therapy, teletherapy, any kind of consultation, please don't hesitate to reach out to me through my website, richardlistens.com. I'm happy to help and support in any way through any kind of strain, support, or isolation you are going through. We are here to alleviate strain and suffering. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm Richard Listen, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.